I hope you're able to be here next week. Next week is a, a really important Sunday in the life of our community as we welcome a bunch of new folks uh, coming into covenant relationship with our church. And it's a tremendously encouraging Sunday for me personally. Um, we, every time we do this, we hear people's stories. We, you get a chance to kind of see what God is doing in the world. And for us who, like the people of Israel, sometimes feel like we're walking in darkness and that the world is a very dim place and God seems removed. This is a Sunday that I feel like, uh, for me, reminds me of God's power. God's power at work in people's lives. So I encourage you to be here next week. Uh, we'll hear a number of stories from people who are coming into covenant. And I hope you'll have an opportunity to rejoice with us at the way that God is building a family and building a community for himself here. Um, I want to start off uh, this morning by referencing the Microsoft, the MSN uh, uh, bulletin board online. Uh, MSN put out a call to, land, to uh, landlords and tenants for really bad nightmare landlord and tenant stories. And this is some of the posts that they got. They got 500 posts like, bam, you know, and they had some great ones here. Um, so here's one. Uh, one guy says this. I had three rental properties. Worst case was this very rich guy. Family had lots of money. He had lots of money. He had the utilities cut off because he didn't pay his bills. So he tapped into my property's electrical lines with an extension cord and ran four heaters off it for a month until it burned through, through on the new hardwood floor. Then he stripped wallpaper and moldings and sold them at a wood supply business. He tried to take the fixtures but was surprised by another tenant who called me. So he skipped town. Family is still very big money and supports him, I've been told, but they are not going to pay any rent or back, back, damage, back cost damages. I was out 3700 for this guy, the cost of his mountain bike, as he one time told me. Story number one. Story number two. Another guy writes this. I am... I'm out of the rental property business, thank goodness. The worst were the people who paid the first and last month's rent, then moved in and never paid another dime. After repeated calls and personal visits, I had to pay $100 to the police to get them out. When the police officers showed up to get them out, they they had shattered the solid core front door, poured paraffin wax down the drains, rewired the electrical wiring to short out the whole system, as the fireman told me, threw beer bottles and broke all the windows and screens out, sold all the furniture and appliances, had the carpet ripped off the floor. What carpet they didn't steal, they poured bleach on and dumped battery acid on the tile floor. Then they put knife holes in the sheetrock and left me with original spray paintings. The water, which had been cut off for months, had been cut off for months, so they were using three-pound butter tubs for their toilet, which they left with me. Yeah, terrible. You want another one? I got one more. This is the best one, okay? I, I'm serious. Here's the best one. A woman writes, rented to a well-to-do couple with a two-year-old who had solid references, so we thought. We paid a rental agency to monitor the property and collect the rent. These people paid on time. However, they had a kitchen fire due to the stove being so filthy. Thousands of dollars in smoke and fire damage completely melted off the microwave. Wouldn't set up the sprinkler system to water the grass automatically, so the entire yard died. They completely tore out the shrubs and cracked the upstairs master bath sink washing a bowling ball. (laughs) Sorry, I can't get it. They didn't have a diaper pail, so they just tossed the wet diapers in a corner of the baby's room. They took every window covering, tore out the alarm system, contacts on all the windows. My favorite one, they drove their car through the wall in the garage into the downstairs 
bathroom. All the toilets in all three bathrooms had to be replaced because they had been painted black. Go tell me. So, you know, these are, some of you have stories like this. Some of you have lived in crazy, crazy situations. You've got your own landlord tenant stories that would, if I had hair, would make my hair curl. You know, but this morning, we're listening to Jesus' nightmare landlord tenant story. And he's got a good one. You know, he tells this parable, and we've been listening to these parables all this fall, and it's a, it's a nightmare landlord-tenant story. And we're going to look through this passage from Luke 20, player by player, and look at each person in the story. Um, the tenants, the messenger, the owner, and then finally the son. And if I forget to do so at point number two, I'm going to credit uh, a couple of quotes from Timothy Keller uh, from New York. A couple of things I'm going to, I'm going to borrow from him there. So the tenants, what's described in this situation that we read in Luke 20 is actually a pretty common circumstance in first century Palestine. There's a landowner who owns a piece of property that is some distance away from him, and he hires tenants, he allows tenant farmers to come onto that property and work that property for him. And and here's how that system worked. The tenant farmers were allowed to come in, and as long as they... They worked the land in a way that benefited the property owner and also did so according to his instructions. Then they got to keep the majority of the crops that they grew on the land. It was a very common practice at the time. And, you know, unlike a lot of parables where, you know, you're like, I don't know what this is talking about. There's a lot of cultural distance. We get this. Landlord-tenant situations. I mean, you and I, we're familiar with security deposits, first and last month's, you know, rent. We're, we're familiar with lease documents. This is a, actually a parable that we get pretty easily. There's not that much cultural distance between what happened, the, the kind of situation we see in this passage, and the stuff on the MSN website. There's not much cultural difference. And we all know that there are basically two problems that landlords face, right? There are two common problems. The first is when tenants say it's a rental, Right? Tenants are like, I, it doesn't matter, I can trash the place, it doesn't matter, it's a rental. The other problem, though, is squatters. When tenants act like they're owners. When tenants act like, no, wait a second, this is mine, and you can't actually get me out of here. You know, Those are the two common problems. And when Jesus tells the story, he's obviously talking about a squatter problem. People who've, said, who've come in and said, I'm... I'm here. You know, these, these tenant farmers who say, you can't, you can't do anything about this. I own this. I am acting like I own this place. When Jesus told this story, the people that he originally told this to, we know from verse 1 and 2, were the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests and scribes. You read this in verses 1 and 2 of this passage. We didn't read this out loud. But it's, it tells us the religious leaders are the people who would have heard this parable. And they would have said, we know exactly what you're talking about, Jesus. Because this was a story that Jesus, that has been, he picks up from the Old Testament. And it's been told over and over. The most notable example is from Isaiah 5. When God says, my people are like a vineyard that doesn't produce the right kind of fruit. It doesn't do, I've cultivated, I've invested in it. And now I'm going to bring judgment on my vineyard. And so these, these religious leaders would have said, we know exactly what you're talking about. We know this story. And yet Jesus adds detail to that story. He says, wait a second, it's not just about the vineyard. There are some people who are supposed to work the vineyard. There are some tenant farmers who are supposed to be cultivating the vineyard. 
You're supposed to make it grow. And so Jesus is indicting these religious leaders. You see at the end, uh, at verses 19 and 20, not printed in your bulletin, but there in, your, in the Bible, it says, these people, when they heard what Jesus said against them, they wanted to tear him to pieces. They wanted his head. Because it was an indictment on the religious leaders. He's, he's saying, look, you are people who've been entrusted with cultivating God's people, the hearts of God's people. You've been entrusted, you've been given something, and yet you've been negligent. And what's more, you act like you own the place. You act like you own the place. See, so for once, you know, some of you may be sitting here and going like, phew, I am so glad we finally get to hear something in our church service that doesn't apply to us. Right? A parable for the religious leaders of Israel. Not so fast. Because I find me in this parable, and I find you in this parable. This parable tells our story. What's the sin of the religious leaders? What's, the, what's their sin? They're squatters. They're squatters. You know, they're just like the tenant farmers in the story. They're, they're, they're tenant farmers who begin to think like they act like they're owners. Like... This is mine, and I can do whatever I want to with it. And that's where I find us. I find this is a parable that tells my story and your story. What has God given us? What has God given you? God has given you your life. Your education. Your job. That family, what you love to complain about. Your mind, your creative abilities, your relationships, your body, your emotions, the things that you love to do. These are all gifts that God has given you. These are all things that God has handed to you. And yet, what? how do you look at those things? Do you act like they are yours? See, the scripture is telling us, look, you're supposed to act, you're supposed to think like someone who's a tenant farmer, who says, this isn't mine. This is, doesn't belong to me. I'm here to cultivate this. So let, let's take this apart, okay? Let, let me just kind of back off. What does this mean? Let's think about this together. You have a mind. But here's the news of the Bible. You can't do with your mind just anything you want to do. You are not a person... Who can just, it doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what I think. You know, God has given you this mind and says, I want to you to use it for my benefit and according to my word. Think about your body. You know, we, we, we treat our body, bodies like they're our personal playgrounds. But the, the Bible shows us a picture that says, no, your body is a trust. You've been entrusted with this. You can't just do with your body anything you want. You're supposed to cultivate it for my benefit, says the Lord, and according to my word. Think about your resources, the things, the tangible resources. You know, you've worked hard for a job. You may feel like, man, I really got this. But that's a gift. God says you can't just treat your employment any old way you want to. You need to cultivate it for his benefit According to his word. Now, look, this flies in the face 
of everything we want to believe about the world and everything that we want to hear from the world. So those popular gospels that you can go read all the time called self-help magazines in the grocery store, the popular gospels that are out today called self-help books that are available in Barnes & Noble, they will tell you that's a lie. They will say, no, you are your own blank canvas. Make your life into whatever you want it to be. You can be anything you want. You know, they say, you're your own person. You're the master of your choices. You are free. And this flies exactly the opposite. Flies in the face of what the Bible says. The Bible says, you are, you know, you know what? Don't act like an owner. You're a tenant. Everything that you have, everything that you think you've earned, everything that you've put together in this life so far, all these things are a gift. And you can't just do with them whatever you want. You're called to cultivate them according to His Word and for His benefit. See, let me demonstrate. Let me demonstrate the owner mentality, the squatter mentality that you and I have. You know, some of you are very intelligent people. Some of you have, you know, lots and lots of degrees behind your name. Some of you are people who are incredibly well read. And you're smart people. Now, what happens when you go to a Christmas party in your hometown over this, this break, of this, this upcoming time with your family? Or you run into some old friends, and you're, you're kind of struck by people's ignorance. You're like, you, you, you kind of, you're, you bump up against someone who's kind of naive, someone who hasn't had a whole lot of exposure to the outside world, someone who's not well-read. What bubbles up in your heart? I'll tell you what comes out of mind. Smugness? Patronizing? Why? Because deep down, we believe we're owners. We have the squatter mentality. This is my mind. I, I am the master of my domain. Think about our health. Think about our health. Uh, let me demonstrate the owner mentality with your health. Your body is a gift. It is a given to you. It's entrusted to you by God. Right? And so... If you ask any person here, and there are several of you, who have faced life-threatening illnesses, chronic illness, or uh, debilitating degenerative conditions, you ask anybody who's faced that, and they will tell you, it's not a right. Health is not a right. Your body is not your own. You know, you're not entitled to a healthy life. But our owner mentality, why, why do we get enraged when we get, when we find, we bump up against our weak, our physical weaknesses. Why do we get so angry about that? Because it smacks you. It tells you you're not the master of your fate. You are not the owner. You know, any time we begin to sing that tune, that Frank Sinatra tune in our lives, "I Did It My Way," any time we begin to see, you know, like that we are not as self-sufficient as we thought we were, it reveals an, a squatter mentality. You know, this is so easy to see with children. You know, we have a house full of these very independent, self-sufficient kids. You know, and it's, it's kind of cute, funny, and a little bit frustrating to see in children. By the way, I don't know where they got this. This is, 
not from me. This is clearly, the acorn does not come from this oak tree. This is clearly Susan's side of the family. I am not an independent, self-sufficient person. You know, uh, but, you know, no, I mean, you see this in little kids, and you see a kid less than two years old who thinks, I'm done with a, I'm done with a high chair and a stroller. I can handle this. And you're like, what? You can't handle anything. But there's this, there's this, I got this mentality. And it's funny in kids, but it's tragic in adults, and it's in every one of us. It's in every one of us. You know, uh, Tim Keller, who I mentioned before, says, We all live in the illusion of self-sufficiency and independence, while the reality is that we're all dependent and contingent. And we don't want to see it, and we don't want to believe it. And it creates, doesn't it, this incredible tension in your life? I mean, doesn't it create this tension of like, no, I don't want the world to be this way. I am the master of my choices. Life is my blank canvas. And then something happens and you're like, ah. Why is this such a big deal with God? Why does God care about this? Why is this sin? Um, two weeks ago, I heard an interview that Terry Gross did on Fresh Air with... The, with uh, Jay-Z, the rapper and, and uh, entrepreneur who's worth, I think, probably half a billion dollars these days. I mean, the guy is incredibly um, savvy with, with entertainment. And, you know, um, the most interesting, interesting part of the whole interview to me was about uh, his song, Izzo. So I'm just going to go ahead and show you how white I am and how old I am, okay? <laughs> so, no doubt, you have heard this song, you know. Uh, H to the Izzo, V to the Izze. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the eighth wonder of the world, the flow of the century. Oh, it's timeless hope, right? Some of you have heard this before. Thank you, thank you. Okay, make the old man feel good, right? See, now, again, showing my ignorance, I never knew what the song was about. I'm like, H to the what? You know, I'm, I don't know. And so I was really, really thankful with, when Terry Gross, who's a little bit wider than I am, asked him, like, so what is H to the Izzo, V to the Izzy? And, and, and he's like, oh, that's, that's kind of like pig, pig Latin. To the is, is, is just like a pig Latin phrase. But it's, so I'm spelling out H-O-V-A. And she's like, oh, okay, so what does H-O-V-A mean? And he says, well, you know, it goes back to this time we were in the studio. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm laying out. And this guy says, man, your lyrics are divine. You like Jehovah. You're not Jay Z. You're Jehovah. And so H O V A J to the H O V. Okay, you're with me. So you know I'm I I'm listening to this. I didn't know this. All of you know this, but I'm listening to this. I'm driving the car and I almost crashed. <laughs> I am serious. I almost crashed the car because why 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 because Jehovah is God's name, and I was like. What? This man, this powerful media mogul, has taken on God's name? The boldness, the brazenness. God is a holy God and you're going to call yourself Jehovah? And then I thought about it. I'm like, man, that's me and that's you. That's us. See, something within us rages at the fact that God is Jehovah and I am not. And you are not. 
And we are not in control of our lives. And we can't, we aren't free just to do whatever we want. God says you're a tenant. You're not an owner. I've given you these things. I want you to cultivate them for my benefit and according to my word. And I say, no! And you say, no. We're as bold as Jay-Z. Don't want this God. Don't want this way of doing stuff. See, this is, brings us to our second character in the story, the messengers. Right? These messengers keep coming. And if you read the parable, as the messengers come, every time the story escalates. The first time, when the, the owner sends the messengers and says, Remember, you don't own this place. What do they do? The tenant farmers beat up the messenger. The second time, they beat him up and the, the, your text says they shame him. That is a euphemism for a sexual term. And finally... They beat him up, and not only do they beat him up, they wound him. They, they, it's it's, it's an, almost a mortal wound. And what happens? The tension is being escalated every time. You know, this Jesus, when he told this story to the people, the, the religious leaders, they heard this, and they knew he was telling them the history of Israel. God came to his people and said, look, You're my own possession. I love you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm giving you and trusting you with all these things. And they said, no. We're not tenant farmers. Owners. And God sent them prophets throughout the Old Testament. You can read them. And they get amped up. Their message gets more and more like, take the gloves off. And the prophets were brutally treated in Israel. And then finally, as we're going to see in a minute... God sends his son. Jesus is just telling the story of Israel. This is what happened. You know, each time the tenant farmers do not want to be reminded that they're not an owner. And again, this is us. You know, each of us hates this truth. You're a tenant. You're not an owner. And God has, like with his people Israel, been sending you messengers all along. And some of you are like, what messengers? I don't remember getting the mail from Jesus. I would have unwrapped that one. You know, but the, the Puritans, the Puritans, as they looked at life, they said, God sends providential messengers to us. God sends providential messengers to us that come with the same message over and over that says, life is not under your control. What are some of those messengers? I mean, you know, Think about these. Challenges at work. Sickness. Close friend moves away. Your salary is cut. The report comes back negative. The company's not doing well. You don't get the promotion. See, each of these messengers comes and says the same thing. You are not in control of your life. You know, and it reveals to us whether you really are, you really do think like a squatter or a tenant farmer. C.S. Lewis says, you know, God, he speaks, he whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's like a megaphone that he uses to try to rouse a sleeping world. What are you hearing? Are you listening? Listen to me. You, wife... Life works in such a way that you will never be in control of it. Some of you are young and happy and beautiful. 
And you live in a world where right now everything's working for your agenda. It's, it's working. It's working well. And I have to warn you, it will not be like that. It will not always be this way. Life is going to hit you hard. And there are going to be they're going to be messengers who come down the road and challenge the I did it my way orientation of your life. And what are you going to do with that? When they come and say, you're not in control. You're not in control. You're not in control. What are you going to do? You're going to beat up the messengers? That's what we do. Just like we see in this passage. What are you doing with those messengers? People in your life. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's one of your best friends who's beginning to speak. They've watched you over time, and they're saying, you can't go like this. You're self-destructive. Maybe it's, maybe it's who you're married to. Maybe it's someone who just broke up with you, who says, you're nuts. This isn't going to work. And you're beating them up in your heart. You're like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're an idiot. See, what do we do? Are, are we like the tenants? Like, get the hell out of here. I don't want to hear what you have to say. You know, I am angry. I, you know, think about the messengers that God is sending you right now. It, see, how you think about these messengers, what you're doing with your life this week, locates you in the story. It locates you here. You know, your response to your providential messengers is an indictment. You know, you're the tenant who thinks that he or she is the owner of your body, your education, your mind, your relationships, you know, your house, your things, your money, your, your family, your talents, your abilities. See, when we say get the hell out of here, that's squatter talk. You know, if you think back to this past week, what's made you angry? What are you, what are you just kind of boiling over? Is there something that's happened this week that just reminds you you're not in control like you thought you were? You don't have this one nailed down. And you rage because you're like, look, I'm Jehovah. How can you tell me this? You know, the owner. The owner is by far the most fascinating person in this parable. Right? The owner is fascinating because any right-minded business owner would not do business this way. Some of you are, are, are people who own your own business. Some of you are in management. You have people you can hire. You have the authority to hire and fire. Some of you are, are, are entrepreneurs and, and like you're doing your thing and you would never operate a business this way. Right? The client doesn't pay. You don't keep like letting them go. You're on the phone like the guys with the, M- the person on the MSN website calling the police and saying, you got to get them out of here. And see, what we see in this, this owner is something odd. Jesus highlights it. Look what he says. He, he says, he, he asks a question because he wants us to ask this question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He wants you to think about that. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Verse 13. In your Bibles, it has a little heading over this. And the title of the the parable is called the parable of the wicked tenants. That that is not actually in the scriptures. That's an editorial insertion, just like your page numbers in your Bible. Somebody put that in, in the printing of your version. And I think it's actually a misnamed parable. Because is it really that surprising that they're wicked tenants? I mean, we we heard from the MSN website. 
That's dime a dozen. Wicked tenants? I mean, you know, I read another one about a guy repairing his, his four-wheeler in the living room. We know about wicked tenants. What's surprising is the crazy landlord. That's what this parable should be called. The parable of the crazy landlord. The parable of the, the generous owner. Because what's surprising in this, what no one expects is a business owner to do this. You know, I'm going to send my son unarmed to go take another message back to these people? How many? I mean, fourth warning? Three times, you know, you're out. This is the fourth warning. That's what's crazy here. The son. This is what makes this such an appropriate Advent message. Because, you know, it's just Jesus is telling the Christmas story. Jesus is saying, this is what happens. This is what Christmas is about. The crazy landlord, the generous owner sends who? What's it say here? His beloved son. To be with us as one of us. You know, he sends him unarmed, unprotected, unguarded. And to a group of tenants who've proven themselves not just to be a little bit angry, but to be violent. No one's surprised when the son is killed by the tenant farmers. They've been amping it up. They're angry. You know, he sends him to us. This is why Jesus, it's a story of incarnation. It's Jesus come as a baby. It's Emmanuel. It's God with us. You know, here's the first application for this passage for you this morning. As I want you to celebrate and not endure Christmas this year. I want you to celebrate and not endure Christmas. See, you know, our society has a tendency to Disneyfy Christmas. To make it all about like this kind of like beautiful little setting. We, we have these like, a lot of you don't have little kids, but we have these little board books. And they show the Christmas story and all the attention's always on the cows. And the lambs. And the little kittens that were with Jesus. I don't care what the cows thought about this. I don't care what the little, little, wooly wham thought about this. Right? You know, we have a tendency to make the whole focus off of God's violently entering into a dark world. See, the story, this is a better Christmas story that Jesus, tell, I mean, in, in Luke 20, it sounds like Middle Eastern politics. It doesn't sound like little whams. You know, it's volatile, it's violent, and it's real. There are a lot of stories um, about the late King Hussein bin Talal, who was the king of Jordan, and was a very dominant figure in Middle Eastern politics in the last century, in the late end of the last century. And there's a story that's told about his, uh, in the early 1980s, about an event within his, within his leadership in Jordan, that very neatly connects with the story. Here's how it goes. One night in the early 1980s, the king was informed by his security police that a group of about 75 Jordanian army officers were at that moment in a nearby barracks plotting to overthrow his kingdom by force. The security officers came to the king and requested permission to surround the barracks and arrest or kill the plotters. But after a somber pause, the king refused and said, bring me a small helicopter. Helicopter was brought in. And the king climbed in with the pilot and flew himself to the barracks. 
and he landed on the flat roof of the building. The king told the pilot, if you hear gunshots, fly away at once without me. Unarmed, the king then walked down two flights of stairs and suddenly appeared in the room where the plotters were meeting and quietly said to them, Gentlemen, it's come to my attention that you're meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow my government, take over the country, and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break, the country will be plunged into civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will be killed. Wait for this. Here I am. Kill me and proceed. That way, only one man will die. After a moment of stunned silence, the rebels, as one, rushed to the king, knelt at his feet and kissed his hand and pledged their loyalty. See, King Hussein, Hussein, no relation to Sodom, he, he opted for total vulnerability. He came in, hands up, no tricks, no guns. And he came in and effectively laid down his life and said, it's yours for the taking. This is what we see in this story. The true king, the beloved son, comes into this world, comes in with those who are violent and who are angry and who say, no, not you. You're not the owner. I am. You know, in this story, the, ton, the tenants are only focused on getting the inheritance. If we can get rid of this guy, we can have his inheritance. And yet God, the crazy landlord, is not surprised. You know, he, the parable shouts to us, even as Jesus tells the story on his, in Jerusalem days before his death. This is what's going to happen, and it's not an oops. Christmas is part of the plan. The incarnation. God walking down the stairs of the building right among the attacker, the plotters, and saying, here I am. Better one man to die for all the people. Christmas and Easter are connected. This is intentions from the very beginning. Look, I want you, this holiday season, not just to celebrate, not just to endure, but celebrate Easter, and I want you to know why. I want you to know why. You know, see, some of you, are still figuring out Jesus and Christianity. And this is a church for people who are wrestling. Many of you, you're welcome here. If you're wrestling with Jesus and the gospel, we're glad you're here. You know, and you may say, this is, this isn't me. I don't have this deep-seated anger and animosity to God. You know, I, I can concede that sometimes I do act like an owner. But I don't have this kind of hatred for God. And of course, the answer is, yeah, you do. I mean, the one time in human history when God made himself absolutely vulnerable to us, we tore him apart. And the blood is not on the hands of Jewish people or Roman authorities. It's on our very own. And we are people who are God's enemies. People who have said, no! Jehovah! Don't want you. And Jesus comes... To die for that kind of anger. My appeal to you is the same one that is made in this passage. Jesus comes to these religious leaders and says, Hey, there's a statute of limitations on God's patience. And he's talking about in AD 70, 
that when the Romans, uh, when, when basically there would be a, a widespread overthrow of Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. And these people are like, God forbid. How can that ever happen? I think I'm invincible. I think this thing's going to keep going forever and ever. And see, the, the same message is for us. Some of you, if you, as you wrestle with God, one of your biggest issues with God is you're like, you know what? I, I don't really want to be told what to do. I don't really want a God who's going to say, for my benefit and according to my word. And I would tell you, there's a statute of limitations on God's patience. And I would tell you not to try that. As a pastor, I have to say this to you. Be careful. You know, some of this, like, I have all these, like, oh, deep philosophical questions. No, you don't. Okay, maybe you have a few. But deep down, we really say, I'm an owner. That's the real issue. I don't want to tell you, Jesus came for that. And he forgives you. If you will come and say, I need the son. The Bible tells us whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. For those of you who are Christians, I want to invite you into this as well. Look, you know, I want you not just to endure but celebrate Christmas, and I want you to know why. If you're like me, you know, this anger at God thing just doesn't go away. You're not like, oh, I became a Christian. Now I'm suddenly really happy and at peace all the time. You know, we struggle. You know, we're angry at what doesn't work in our lives. The ways that our lives continue to seem to crash all the time. And here's what happens. Maybe maybe this you can identify with this. You go to home meeting one week. And you're really moved. And you're like, yes, I want to live differently. Jesus is real. I'm, this is good. You come here into a worship service. And it kind of, it's like spiritual sanity. And you're like, yeah. This table. Jesus is blood for me. It's a body for me. And you go out two hours later, and it's like it never happened. You find yourself enraged at the way that life doesn't work. The way that, ah, oh, this isn't, God is not ordering this world around me and my purposes. You know, I listened to um, Colbert, and, and, you know, one of the things that he said this week about, about Christmas, he was like, he was kind of taking a stab at Christians, and he's like, you know, yeah, you know, it makes a lot of sense for you people to believe that there was a star that led, you know, magi from afar through a desert, you know, and to find a baby that was born by a virgin. You know, this makes lots of sense. And, you know, I know some of you have questions and doubts about those things, and we're going to be addressing those in the next couple of weeks. But I would tell you my biggest faith issues as a, as a Christian are not those of, like, did the miracles happen in the Bible? It's, can I believe the basic stuff? God is Jehovah and I am not. I'm not in control of the world. That's the stuff I have trouble believing. Day in and day out, my rage, my despair, my sorrow, and my fear indict me. And I want to invite you to join me in repenting. See, Christmas tells us, Christians, we need the cross every day. We need the incarnated Jesus every day. We need the Son who entered into history, who came and laid himself down for us. And I want to invite you to worship. I want you to invite you to daily embrace the fullness of how much you need this. How much you need to be shocked by God's grace over and over and over. This is where we find joy. Welcome to Christmas. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.